0: Yeah, you can always tell when you're reading these letters of recommendation when they don't want to say something. As soon as it says, uh, he's been here for three years and he's never stolen anything that we know of, <laughs> that's a problem. What
1: purpose do these universities possibly think that a solicited letter from the applicant is going to be anything but glowing? Hey guys, Rick of here. We got a momentous occasion going on here. For 11 years, we've been doing uh, Risk Management Monthly using a uh, software program that we wrote, not me personally, but my guys wrote, and it was time to update it. And have we updated it? The new program, you'll see it uh, with the September issue, basically allows you to get the uh, content on any internet-connected device. You can stream, you can listen to it on your phone, your tablet, your computer, uh, anywhere. Uh, you can download it. You can have a great time with it. In addition... We still have our searchable notes, which go back to the beginning of time, written by my very qualified sister, Jerry Hasapis. And um, we hope you enjoy it. still has the search features, everything that you had knew before, but faster, better, and um, more accessible. So we hope you like it. Get back to us if you have any uh, questions, uh, comments, suggestions. Thanks for listening. Risk management on the coming to you. Hey guys, Rick Picotta, Greg Henry on the line for the September issue of Risk Management Monthly. Greg, welcome, welcome, welcome. I see you're in your Hawaii shirt uh, would, it must be at least uh, 50 degrees in Michigan.
0: Well, it's going to probably hit 55 today, and this is as close as we get to the tropics. So and don't tell me what it is in L.A. I, I don't want to know. But uh, let me just say, it's uh, amazing how time rushes by. We're uh, in September, uh, the September issue. And Rick, do you realize we're in our 11th year of doing risk management monthly? You know,
1: and the, uh The thing that I think is weird about it is that there's always stuff to do. It's not like, well, what do we do this month kind of thing? There's always cases. There are always articles. There's always rulings of of this or that. And uh, it's our job, our obligation to
0: get them out there to you. You realize uh, that risk management monthly is exactly like the emergency department. That is – if intelligence and common sense ever broke out, we'd have nothing to do, but there's a fat chance that that's going to happen. So we can, we can continue on and talk about what we want. So, uh, Rick, start us off with a great article. This well, morning. you know, I
1: wanted to make one other point when I thought about the, uh, the 10 years, it was like, well, is, are the prior issues of this thing, like old newspapers and and the answer is no, there's stuff in, that we did 10 years ago that is equally pertinent now. It's, it's like, it's not like it's, that stuff is a uh, passe. It doesn't apply anymore. That's not the case at all. So it, the idea of having this ever-growing monster of a database, um, is, I think it's, uh, I take a s- substantial amount
0: of pride in it. And I know you do too. Oh, absolutely. And I, I can't picture that any residency training program would not have access to this database so that they can uh, help educate their uh, residents. There's a lot of good, basic stuff here. and uh, In fact, I'm speaking at a residency tomorrow, Rick, and we're going to talk about medical legal issues, and hopefully we'll have the residents' attention. And hey, listen, get you know, I'll give you a, you know, a 10% you know, commission
1: yourself, <laughs> some of this, all right? I'll do that. Okay, let's get started. Uh, The first paper is entitled The Liability of a Glowing Reference. This is in the journal Anesthesia and Analgesia, which I know you all read, uh, Mm -hmm. the uh, June uh, 2017 issue. Greg, we talked about this topic, I believe, uh, maybe once before, but not recently, not recently. Yes. And this gets into this idea here of um, how delicate this matter can be uh, because – Negative references, we don't want to write. People, when you they ask you for a reference, the inference is that you they're asking you for a positive reference, they're not they're not wanting an objective resident a reference. They want a positive reference, so you can't really write a negative reference um, because it will it would be the, uh, you know uh, construed as defamatory. Uh, you know, if critical statements are are made that harm a person's professional standing or prevent someone from receiving a sought-after position. So that's on one side of the ledger. But the real challenge is on the other side of the ledger, when you're writing positive stuff about a person that glazes over or omits shortcomings, and as a result of that, this person gets hired and the shortcomings become obvious, and it's like, what the heck? You said this person was, was wonderful.
0: Yeah, so, why don't you give them the case here, Rick, so we can talk about it, because I think – um. Well, I, I'm going to have a few opinions here. Go ahead. Well, they, uh, uh, the anesthesiology
1: case is the one that we talked about uh, many years ago. An anesthesiologist was known by the group to be diverting drugs and was found under the influence and was fired. Failure by the group and the hospital to note these substantial issues in multiple letters of reference resulted in him being hired by another group While under the influence, he performed anesthesia on a mother of three, leaving her with significant brain damage and a to the hiring facility. Hiring facility of over $8 million resulted. Now, that's kind of like the the worst case scenario here. But there are going to be things that are not nearly this egregious that are going to uh, result when, in fact, you decide to write a letter that omits substantive factual issues you basically have to they have to be facts and uh and you have that if you if you read a glowing reference you should have facts to support the glowing reference he got uh a's on all his exams all the reviews by the other uh, people on the rotation loved him etc 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 so that there are some facts substantiating why you said this person looks like he's going to hit it out of the park
0: yeah you can always tell when you're reading these letters of recommendation when they don't want to say something. As soon as it says, uh, he's been here for three years and he's never stolen anything that we know of, <laughs> that's a problem. Uh, another one which said, and I don't think his tether should interfere with his seeing patients in the department. You know, there are little hints here, Rick, that they're trying to convey something. It, in my years of having to write letters of reference, and I've written hundreds of them, let me just say that the first thing you mentioned, they always think it's going to be positive. Disavow them of that right off the bat. When we've let anybody go, one of the, one of the subjects, which is on our list of topics to be discussed, we have a checklist on this, is what the letter of reference is going to say. And I think you should come up with that letter of reference so that everybody's aware how that's going to be couched because in medicine, they got to go somewhere to make a living and somebody's going to ask for that letter. And so um, I usually have that honest discussion right up front. Secondly, uh, I think that if you're going to say something negative in that letter, It's perfectly fine to have that discussion with the person up front, because the last thing you want is to blindside somebody. You know, that's not right. Um, A a common myth is if I say something bad, uh, they can sue me. Well, shit, they can sue you for anything, so you might as well do what's right. And the defense against uh, libel and slander is the truth if what you said you can document, then you know what? They don't have a leg to stand on. In all my years of writing these letters, nobody's ever threatened to sue me. And, and uh, the other thing is, um, most of us who know other people in the business, if we get a phone call, we'll have a quiet conversation uh, uh, to, let's say, supplement the letter. And um, I, again, I... I've never seen any of those things challenged in our practice.
1: Well, a couple things you mentioned is, um, first of all, you have the option to say no when somebody asks you to write a reference, but that is not without its potential cost in that if you are in a residency situation and you're a faculty member and you say no to a resident, you have to remember that these residents get to evaluate you. And so you might have a little black mark from that resident for, uh, some other kind of, uh, but uh, per perceived sin when in fact it was really precipitated by the fact that you declined to send a letter of reference for this person. So they attack you from some other way. The other thing is what you mentioned is kind of making being wishy washy and hoping for the phone call. This guy specifically says, if you write a letter that is vague in the hopes of getting a phone call in which you can d- divulge more serious issues. You may also have a problem if the anticipated phone call never comes.
0: Right. Oh, uh, there's no question about that. But I think the other side of this coin is we always want to be supportive, but supportive of who? When, when you're screwing another hospital or group of docs, because you haven't told the truth, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, and a patient, the, the patient suffers for this. You know what? I, I don't think you're doing anybody any good by not giving them a balanced perspective of this physician.
1: Well, you're, you're not doing the, uh, the physician any good. He wants a job for crying out loud. You know, yeah,
0: well, I I understand that the, the problem is this, there are people who probably, um, need to be watched a little more carefully. And there, there may be people who quite frankly, are not as good as others. And we have to, you know, we are equal in our, in our right to trial by jury and in the eyes of God and in no other ways. And if, uh, if we think that we're doing the, the society, some favor by writing uh, crap letters, I I just don't think it's the way to go. The bottom line here, here's what the authors advise. Number one, each
1: department, Should issue letters of reference from a central administrative office. Somebody writing them in there who knows how to write them, who knows how these nuances, not every Tom, Dick and Harry should be writing the letters. Right. Although although you generally ask people who you think uh, uh, think well of you to write the letter. You want this one. I'm going to pick that one kind of thing. They're going to write nice letters. But that uh, has its faults, according to these guys. Number two. The letter should contain all pertinent known and justifiable positive and negative attributes. This process will serve to relieve individual faculty of the burden of writing a letter for each request. They know that the opinions are acceptable when they are justified. So there is, so it becomes a departmental letter, not a letter from uh, Mr. Smith or Dr. Sm- uh, Dr. Jones. And, um, It may not be able to have the glowing uh, attributes that uh, one of your faculty members may give, but it's going to give a more balanced view and taking into consideration all the people's uh, views of this applicant.
0: What I've tried to do over the years, and and Rick, I know you've probably had this uh, happen, is I'll get a letter from someone who worked for us 15 years ago, and they're now applying for a job. I make sure that in the letter I write, I state very clearly when we knew this person, when they worked for us, the fact that I have not had contact with them in the interim, and try and review as best I can what happened during the time they were with our organization. But uh, believe me, um, I can barely remember what I had for, for dinner last night let alone somebody who worked for us for six months, 15 years ago. Well, and I, I I, agree.
1: I, I, I've gotten those as well. And, uh, it's, you're wondering why is a person asking for a reference when there's this huge, uh, period of time in between when you were there and now, now they're asking for a reference. And I always am suspicious because it's like, well, can't somebody more proximate to your current status give you a, the the last job you're at? And so I always, I, were you in, were you in prison
0: for ten of these years? They, <laughs> yes. You know, the problem is that the other letter of reference is from his warden, and uh, <laughs> that may not be the way to go here on these things. Well, you know, but they all, I, they always want to know uh,
1: what 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 were you doing during this time frame? They don't want to have any areas where. Uh, there's a blank there. We don't know what you were doing for a two years.
0: Let me tell you a trend that I've seen. And I probably received 20 of these letters now from the hospital that they are applying to that hospital will send to the, the people who are writing the letters of reference, a list of things they want commented upon, such as where did they rank in their patient satisfaction scores they just don't want to know whether was he okay or not okay. They want to know was this guy in the upper quarter of that, this, that, or another thing. What disciplinary actions? What did you do to assure that he can still put in chest tubes and all this other sort of thing? I think that uh, hospital uh, boards are requiring more today than they ever did when you and I started out, Rick.
1: Well, you know, that that may be true because they have this uh – uh, obligation to the medical staff and the patients of that hospital to do their homework. They even check your credentials about where you went to medical school. You just can't put down. I went to Temple Medical School. They know they sent a letter to the, this guy graduate from this place. And when did that happen? Kind of thing. So they they leave no stone unturned because they don't want any problem docs getting onto their medical staff. Because once they're on, it's really difficult to get them off.
0: Well, we had a problem where we had to get a a diploma translated uh <laughs> which was in arabic and and uh, we had to match it up to make sure that this person was who they said it was it literally took rick 6 months to get that problem ironed out and i'll tell you the the Credentials committee, which you know passes their stuff on to the board of that hospital, until that was done, they did not want to uh, review that, that doctor's application.
1: I guess one last thing here I, uh, I am asked with some frequency to write letters of recommendation for people who are being promoted at universities, and the university requires them to have three or four or five outside, uh, references from not within the uh, university. So I get letters from people who, uh, famous people, actually, that you, you may know.
0: (laughs) And I've written letters for as well. Exactly. And you know, it's kind of weird.
1: They get to pick the person who's writing this letter. Well, you're not going to be requesting a letter say you know frank i'm getting a i'm i'm up for a promotion will you write me a nice letter of course you do it's like what what purpose do these universities possibly think that a solicited letter from the applicant is going to be anything but glowing for crying right. out loud it,
0: exactly I, I have no reason why I would write these things it's so easy when it's somebody i teach with um in the ema program or for asap something like that uh, or I've reviewed their, their written materials, that sort of thing. But uh, you're right. You wouldn't ask somebody to write a letter in those cases who couldn't basically say you're the greatest doctor who ever lived. Okay, Greg, we got a uh,
1: Mike Ritter sent us a Horty Springer uh, mtala case.
0: Yes. So Mtala, we're back in Mtala. In fact, we have several things to comment on in MTALA, uh this month. Uh, a patient died during a transfer to a higher level of care. Well, in general, there are going to be situations at hospitals, and particularly nowadays where certain uh, services are closing at various hospitals, uh, where you have to transfer to a higher level of care. The allegation of the family was that there was no continuous monitoring as required by the hospital's policy. But it's but the hospital got off on this uh, assertion. Uh, that wasn't that wasn't what uh, they say happened. But the family also asserted that the physician failed to provide adequate documentation in this record. The court focused heavily on the fact the physician had failed to check the box, indicating the benefits of transfer exceeded the risks. Now, you and I as docs, See, that seems to be so damn obvious. If I'm at a small Michigan, upper Michigan hospital and a child has a subdural hematoma, what we can't take care of, you have two choices. You can watch the kid die at your place or attempt to save them. But the court is interested, and this is the difference between medicine and law. Law wants to see the process served that you've checked the boxes. You've done those things. There was no documentation of the risks of transfer. Well, all you got to say is, yeah, you could do worse and die if you stay here. Uh, The court agreed with the family and allowed the case to proceed to a jury trial, which to me drives me crazy, Rick. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I think there's a bottom line here. And that is, the transfer form, which we all have at our place, has those boxes. Check them. Tell the family why they're being transferred, the risks of going and not going. That's what we need to do because the, the law wants the process, not necessarily the outcome.
1: Yeah, sure. If this uh, person uh, is sick enough. Uh, They had their leg chopped off, and we're agreeing to do a transfer because we can't fix it here. This is a a resipse loquiter. The facts speak for themselves in that just because I didn't check this box for crying out loud, I was so upset with trying to get this person out of here that I'm sorry, I missed the box kind of thing. Of course, it was obvious that this person needed to be transferred, but they're looking at the technicalities here, and we know that the imtala paperwork is sacrosanct, sacrosanct.
0: Yep. Uh, it, and I'm so happy as a good altar boy, you used that little Latin phrase in there. It made my heart just uh, jump with joy. But that's right. The The thing speaks for itself. And so if you've got a box, check it. Uh, and, and if you haven't done it, you better have a reason why you haven't done it. And I think this should be a warning to all of us that sometimes it's not the medicine, it's other things. By the way, we have, uh, speaking of EMTALA, how many individual physicians have paid money, individual physicians have paid money as a result of violations between 2002 and 2015? Now, as I look at it, that's about 13 years. There's a a study by Dr. Sophie Terra and friends, which was published in Academic Emergency Medicine, April 2017. So this is Sort of hot off the presses here, Rick. Of the 196 civil monetary penalty settlements, 188 were leveled against facilities. Well,
1: that's, say, a, that's what
0: the law is about. Yeah, right?
1: M- yeah. It's MTALA basically mandates that the hospital provide services, the hospital do this, when in fact, hospitals don't do that, doctors do it.
0: Well, so, but hosp- doctors do it on behalf of the hospital. And so hospitals would be wise to make sure that their system works. What was interesting is, uh, there were eight uh, uh, payments, settlements, against individual physicians, and here's the sweetness of this. (laughs) Seven were on-call physicians, (laughs) seven of the eight who didn't come in or show up when they were called by the emergency doc. Oh my God, heart soars like hawk. It really does. I would really like to paste this article on the forehead of a certain number of jerks in my house who say, well, you know, I don't have to do this. I don't have to come in. Yeah, eat this fool. Uh, and, and I love the fact that I, I think in their study, there was only one emergency doctor who had to pay something and it wasn't very much. As, well, as an individual I, well my
1: contention is if had this person been a subscriber there wouldn't even be one uh doctor in this list you know this guy screwed up the uh the, the stats here you yeah. know it's really uh, really remarkable that over all of this time and all of this fear and all of this chest beating 2002 to 2015 we're talking about eight uh, eight doctors for crying out loud. And you could have intuited that most of them are going to be these jerks who won't come in. Right. So, th- uh, so, and the, also the amount of money paid, the amount of money paid was like, like uh, penny, petty cash. Rick, penalty-
0: you have, you have bar bills bigger <laughs> than this a lot of nights. Uh, particularly if I'm drinking Louis Trez on your, <laughs> on your, uh, on your account. Uh, but that's exactly right. When docs get into this MTALA thing, oh, I' so afraid, this said another thing. It's the institution who's at risk, not the individual doctor. and i th- I think that most people don't understand what what little chance there is you're going to pay money out of your own pocket. It ain't going to happen.
1: You know the the uh, physician charges or what they paid range between ten. 10- and 35,000 doctors and our emergency physician got to 10. Now yeah. on the hospital side, half the hospitals also had payments that they had a fork over and those And those were not very much either. They were between 7,500 and $45,000. It's like, I think the real grief associated with a potential EMTALA violation is the way they swoop down on you with 25, you know, FBI agents kind of taking out all the cardboard boxes looking out under everything.
0: Rick, it's not the money in the fine. It's the delay of payment, and they can suspend the hospital's participation in Medicare, Medicaid, all those sorts of things so that the hospital has collection problems for the next six months. Hospitals are like any other business. you got to be continuously bringing in cash, uh, and that's the real danger here. It's not the fine. It's, it's all of the rigmarole you go through and delays in payment, but, um, uh, it's good to straighten everybody out on how much has actually been paid by emergency docs. And it's unbelievably low amounts of money. One doctor for kind of one, one doctor in years. Yeah. Uh, We we can write this one off. All right.
1: I'm going to do a case here. Um, This is the case of a 13-year-old Molly Brazhoff. Brazhoff. Uh, Her parents are suing because their daughter died from a brainstem herniation due to a brain tumor. You know, it's kind of hard to conceive that uh, a brain tumor would go that long and not get recognized. But this is a great example of where that happened. Here's the long and short, as it's derived from a detailed article in the Concord, New Hampshire monitor, which is, um, got this line by line. This was published January 16, 2017. She went to a pediatrician for headaches on February 28th and, and, and April 21st and a variety of apparently related symptoms. She, she again she saw her pediatrician six days later, headache, vomiting, and tip of tongue num- numbness. Now you're a neurology guy, man. Tip of right. tongue um, num- num- numbness is, is that uh, equivalent is that a, a equivalent to a num chin numb chin? You know no. the num chin chin sign.
0: Yes, I know the num chin sign. The problem here, Rick, is we got to teach you how to say these things. Num right? chin, num chin, <laughs> num chin, it's num his, chin. It's,
1: it's I, a, I, 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 that guy works down the street. Yes, in a restaurant down here. Num chin. Right. He had the, I was just going to
0: say <laughs> Yeah, he does that with sauce. But uh again. Whenever you have a series of visits, it's not the first visit. You and I wouldn't have picked up a brain tumor the first time we saw a kid with a headache. It's when you put the whole thing in some perspective and order here, and now they're starting to get some actual physical findings. How they take these physical findings and complaints and they diagnosed migraine and sinusitis. Oh, no,
1: let me go through the details here now. <laughs> yeah, okay. Some, there's some good stuff here yet. So she went to a pediatrician a number of times and got shined on, here's some all kind of thing. Four days after her third visit, she goes to the ED. The emergency physician documents no prior imaging has occurred. He recommends outpatient MRI. God, what is this guy thinking of? Um, Yeah, they show brain tumors better than CTs, but by the time you have a brain tumor causing a headache, you're going to have something pretty obvious on your CT. But in any case, in the ER, she became lethargic and did not follow commands on re-evaluation. She was evaluated by a pediatrician. Again, no response to verbal commands. This was attributed to medication and lack of sleep. She was advised to be further observed. Uh, with the advice to discharge the patient if her medical status cleared. That was the pediatrician had to say. The emergency physician signs over care
0: to another doctor. So here
1: we got a pass on. Let's throw that into the mix here.
0: And if you're a plaintiff's attorney, now you got two emergency docs you can sue, double the amount of money. This is good. Go ahead, Rick. Um uh, She's noted
1: not uh, to be walking with substantial assistance going to the bathroom. In fact, there was a person on either arm, and it's not clear that she was even walking in, in this vertical position. She walked with her eyes closed. The pediatrician admits the patient for more observation, notes there, quote, catch this, appeared to be a behavioral component to her somnolence, and ordered. Pain medicines and IV fluids. Behavioral okay. component. As soon as you there, okay, you know they think that she's whacking, uh, that she's faking this stuff here, kind of yeah. thing.
0: And and Rick, if you read the stuff, I if it was your kid, your little kid, who went down the tubes, and now you have a doc who's saying, you know, I think she's nuts. Oh, uh, the, that's it. That's inflammatory. That's, that's inflammatory. The that's the coup de gras. It's right. If you want to make families unhappy, uh, you say, "Well, she's just a little nuts," uh, and and that that's bad. The other thing is, uh, whenever you have to insert a Foley catheter into a kid, she's just faking it. She's just faking it, right? Oh my God, they did do they did. However, isn't it correct they did do a CT scan or something which showed the tumor, right? Yeah, they did a Foley catheter,
1: uh, and she arrested during the Foley catheter. Sometimes just prior to that, emergency T showed a large brain tumor. She was transferred to a tertiary center where she was brain dead two days later. And uh, this, you know, this has a lot of the lessons that we've talked about, ad nauseum.
0: Well, but, but the other side of that is if you and I had been the doctor there, no matter how smart we were or when we got the CT scan, She's compressing her spinal cord with a tumor. Whether we could have saved it, had a different outcome or not, is, is probably a debate. What isn't a debate is the family was not handled well in this case. Just not handled well.
1: Well, you know, the other thing is, is um, why, why would a doctor say, well, we need to get an MRI unless it was immediately available. We're going to get it on next Tuesday after this
0: multiple visits to a doctor kind of thing for headaches and, um, and positive physical findings. I mean, when you think about it, uh, this isn't most headaches, most headaches have no physical findings. This one had physical findings. And so you got to do something.
1: You know, the other thing uh, I think that is, uh, uh, operant here is we sometimes have a too low a threshold for doing CTs in headache patients. I mean, I'm looking at some literature that basically is saying 60% of ER headaches are getting uh, CT these days. And I think that on the other end of the coin, it's like, well, I'm ct in her. So I want to make sure that, you know, I'm a little concerned that she doesn't have a brain tumor. I can tell you that if she has a brain tumor. She'll be going to another doctor within the next week or so because the headaches are still there and, and, and the idea that you didn't pick it up on day one will have virtually no effect on the outcome of this patient.
0: Yeah. But now that you've got actual findings, yes, I'm not talking you, about this case. Yes. Now because, you got to move to to take care of the problem. But by the way, we as physicians, uh, tend to modify symptoms, not only in other patients, but in ourselves, I have a very close friend, great physician, big names, all that kind of stuff. He's telling me, "Oh, you know, I think I've got a prostate problem. I've got this or that." My God, he's got—he—he he has a, a meningioma in his head, uh, which he denied essentially all these uh, symptoms and findings on himself uh, until the point he couldn't pee or he was having overflow incontinence, could barely walk. And his, and his mentation was going downhill. And so doctors, doctors are no different than any other humans. We can minimize symptoms, um, anytime we want.
1: No, I understand that. But, um, my plea is to not do a lot of CTs because you're concerned about finding a brain tumor in this kid or this person who has a headache, because I do believe that a sm- small delay in making the diagnosis a week, two, three weeks later in terms of a regular brain tumor, not that one that's c- causing compression of the, of the, uh, vital centers or causing those kinds of things, plain old brain tumor kind of thing will be picked up and your failure to pick it up on visit one will not change the outcome. That's, that's absolutely true. All right. Moving on here. Um, Randy Danielson. Uh, our friend uh he's the uh, actually he p- participates in our uh boot camps our uh, PANP primary care physician boot camps uh Randy is the uh, co-editor of clinician reviews which goes out to be about 100,000 PAs and NPs he's also the dean of the AT Still University uh, campus of health of campus or uh, healthcare university in uh, Mesa, Arizona, where we were honored. You and I were honored to give commencement addresses last year. They were really pretty desperate. Um, (laughs) But in any case, Randy sends me, I guess he's on some kind of listserv where he gets, uh, or or something where uh, alerting service, where he gets all of the articles related to PAs and MPs. And he sent me a paper Looking at lawsuits in uh, the PANP world, comparing it with uh, physicians, the information he sent—I uh, don't have the reference, unfortunately—but it's from the National Practitioner Database, and it does not specifically focus on emergency medicine. So this is across the board. The time frame for this data is from 2005 to 2014, and during that time period, there were between 11 and 19 reports to the database. Per one thousand physicians, between eleven and nineteen for a thousand physicians.
0: Yeah, Numbers- and that's reports per year. I, I mean, it's that 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 it varied year to year, but right. it's reports per year, Rick.
1: Yes, right. I'm, yeah, I should have clarified that. Thank you for the clarification. Dr.
0: Yes. Now, on
1: the PA side, how many reports did they have per year over that period of time? It ranged between one point four reports and two point four reports. I don't know how you get a 0.4 report, but anyway, it's a, it was, it was 10% of what the physicians was and the nurse practitioners were similar 1.1 and to 1.9 per thousand NPs. So they're getting to, into the data bank on, uh, on basically a level playing field, because we're talking about per thousand, uh, clinicians. Uh, They're getting a lot less uh, into trouble. Physician medium payments were 1.3 to 2.3 times higher than PAs or NPs. And frankly, I'm surprised that that this difference was so small. Uh, Don't you think, Greg, uh, a 1.3 times difference between uh, what you paid versus a PA paid?
0: Um, Yeah. Here's the problem with this data, Rick, and having worked in the insurance industry for a long period of time. What you don't know from this data is how many of these PAs or NPs were named individually as opposed to along with a physician. So, so really, well, uh, they
1: got in, they got into the
0: database, they got into the database, but they may have, they still may have had some interaction with the patients and the physician got sued the PA was not named individually, uh, and and so we still don't know exactly what this is, but I think it's it's telling that the, the bottom line is it's about a tenth as much as DOCS. Right. And the payment differences uh, between the two groups are relatively small.
1: Yes, I, those are the two points. There's one other issue here. Uh, We know that in emergency medicine, diagnosis is everything. That's where you get get sued. Well, and we're not talking about uh, strictly emergency medicine data here. Diagnosis-related malpractice allegations occurred for a third of the physicians, catch this, versus for half of the PAs and 40% of the NPs. So basically, we get into trouble for a third third of our cases are diagnosis. That's because we have a lot of other places to screw up. Right but uh, because so it's just flip-flopped you wouldn't think maybe it would have been different but pAs and mPs get sued for diagnosis related issues substantially more than physicians do yep which which is a very telling statistic as well
0: all right where do you want to go here chief i want to i want to get to our friend Joel geiderman's paper what about uh, well, can
1: we can we do a quickie can we what's do a that? quickie what about this one? Um, this letter. We have one letter. Okay. <clears throat> Pardon me. Email, and I and I'd like to do it. It's not going to take much time. It's a great question. Uh, they, we say the advice is always the same. Don't discuss pending cases outside a protected environment. But what about cases that you know just go bad? Nobody's thinking, you know, you haven't heard about you're going to get sued or anything like that, but you know, it, it, it it may come up a little bit later down the road that this case is going to get litigated. So the guy says, what do you do in those cases? And so, uh,
0: I rendered my opinion and sent it back to him. What's your opinion here, doctor? Yeah, I, as far as I'm concerned, if you need to present this to the department, you declare a certain part of the departmental meeting as a quality assurance meeting. You note it as such. You can even invite the quality assurance person, the risk manager from your hospital or the hospital's attorney, to be at that part of the meeting. But I would, to the best of your ability, have this tagged as quality assurance because in the vast majority of states, quality assurance material is neither discoverable or admissible at the time of trial. But here's the issue.
1: He's not talking about cases like that. He's talking about a case that went bad (laughs) last night. I don't anticipate any kind of thing, but I, I want to be careful about talking about it. So I suggested that all of these cases be discussed in the hypothetical. You're not talking about, uh, What doctor necessarily, uh, certainly no patient names, no identifying information, talking about it in the hypothetical. And I contacted our crack, Dr. Bitterman, our our resident uh, attorney, uh, who was off to a bridge tournament. This guy honestly is ranked in the world here, in the United States at least, in the top bridge players in this country. In any case, he was headed out to a bridge tournament, but he did say... That he fundamentally catch this agreed with me. Oh, he said no. God. He said no names, no specific cases. You want to be able to truthfully say to an attorney that you did not discuss the case with anyone. Else, uh, and and <clears throat> that's it. So that uh, so there are some guidelines here that you can talk about things with your colleagues uh, about cases that have clinical implications about what I could have done better at those kinds of things, but it has to be very generic. What would you do in a case of,
0: you yes. know, that kind of thing? Yeah, it better be very generic. The other thing is you better say that with a straight face <clears throat> when they ask you a question, uh, because uh, I, I just don't want casual conversation in the department about cases that are problematic. It's not a good thing yeah we yes, but
1: we, you you acknowledge that these cases that r- really go bad and go and get the litigation are one 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 thousandth of the cases that you'd like to discuss with your colleagues because things just not didn't go as you had hoped.
0: No question about that. So in general, speaking about it is fine about the the disease entity and yes. what one might do about the disease entity, not that particular case, and once there is a letter, any communication received from the patient or their attorney involving the case, then all discussion stops.
1: Okay, what are, where, what are we up to here, Chief? My pages are out of order,
0: clearly. Uh, okay, you want you to deal with the article by Joel Geiderman. That's okay, the one that's, okay, okay, okay. from Cedar, yeah. All right, Rick, um, you and I have a friend— at uh, At Cedar Sinai Medical Center here in Los Angeles, which, as you know, is hospital to the stars. I mean, everybody's got a wing or a bob Hope, this or a so and so that this is where the beautiful people go for care, and the director of the emergency department there, uh, Joel geiderman, and Joel's been there forever um. And Joel has taken it upon himself to be interested in the ethical aspects of medical care. He was the first one to object to all these reality shows being in ERs. And it wasn't just in Los Angeles, because certainly they've done it at Vanderbilt. They've done it in a lot of places. And uh, basically, he said, you know, we should not be videotaping live, real patients in emergency departments, and then afterwards asking to get their permission to use this on TV. We've gone ahead, we've made a record, we've got their information. You know, really, um, we need to be protecting patient privacy better than this. And uh, people should understand that HIPAA violations take place and it can cost the um, the institution one point five million dollars. Well,
1: listen, guy, interrupt here because uh, uh, yeah. we used to have it at um, USC in the what they call the um, the uh, it was the trauma area. Right. And they had a wall uh, in the trauma area where they had all of the cabinets, but the wall did not go to the ceiling, so that people could stand on the other side of that wall and look over the top of that wall. And you would, and there would be a, tra- a trauma case or a severe illness case come in, and there would be 15 people looking at this patient. We're not sure who those people were necessarily, and they also had a time when they would video the patients just as they came in with the idea that it was for medical training and quality assurance kinds of things, again, without really any uh, uh, consent whatsoever. All of that, all of that has gone away. Because of uh, legal concerns, fo- focusing on privacy.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, nobody, nobody asked for any of this to take place. You know, we have we we are very casual about the fact that there are all kinds of people who go into the rooms with us to see the patients, medical <coughs> students, residents, uh, various levels of people in the hospital. Now we have scribes for the doctors. What is their obligation to privacy for the patient? And I, I think Joel Geiderman raised a very good point here, and that is you know what? Try and keep this stuff to to a minimum and not do this. And he was honest enough to point out that in 2012, uh, Cedar Sinai fired six employees, four physicians, a medical student, and one research assistant. Over patient database breaches, you should not be calling up Madonna's gonorrhea culture. Uh, well, <laughs> no, that's that was exactly I, one of the cases. No,
1: and, no, and, no, 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 no. We're not talking about Madonna's uh, anything. No, uh, all la- lawyers listening, we're not accusing her of. And the doctor Henry just had a a little the tangential uh, references that uh, were inappropriate.
0: It was uh, just uh, an example. But the point is, there's a need-to-know basis. If you're calling up the medical records on on anyone, and I don't care if they're famous or not famous, the, it better be on a need-to-know basis. If well, you're case, just shopping, you can't do that.
1: The cases that uh, were noted in 2012 at uh, Cedar sinai involved—now, nobody— acknowledge this because this would have even violated privacy even more. Uh, but it was speculated that it involved, uh, the, uh, a delivery by a wor- wor- world famous, world famous personality, Kim Kardashian. Yes. <laughs> and all 14 records were violated, uh, in, in that, in that process. And, uh, they all did kind of nasty things. They were giving each other passwords to, you know, sharing passwords and, and and the like um but UCLA honestly is not without sin that's the other crosstown rival in terms of you talk another hospital where there's a lot of celebrities go it's UCLA right. and both these hospitals are really in close proximity in 2003 dr hooping zhao dr zhao was fired and anticipated and 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 he was really kind of pissed off and so there was some anticipated retaliation in which he accessed uh, about 230 medical records uh, in the hospital, and it turns out they caught him before that. These records were able to be released uh, to uh, the newspapers and the and the Star News and, those, and the National Enquirer. But the fact of the matter is, is he is the first doctor to uh, go to jail for violation of privacy. He was, uh, he was get, he got a whopping 2,500 dollars fine. He got four months uh, in jail. Uh, other stars at UCLA, Farrah Fawcett, Maria Shriver, Brittany Spears, George Clooney's, uh, medical, uh, was in a, mo- a motorcycle accident. He, his stuff was, came out in a hospital in New Jersey. Remember the lady who had, uh, the Octomom, Nadia Solomon. Yes. She, uh, she, her stuff was leaked at Kaiser hospital, uh, here in uh, Lo- Los Angeles. Michael Jackson, a bunch of others have been violated in terms of the release of their medical in- information, all by people who worked in the hospitals, totally inappropriately. You know, when I was researching this, I also came around uh, across another, more even more recent, more recent uh, example. April 2021, uh, April 21st, 2016. This is in the uh, New York Times. This is a New York Presbyterian Hospital $2.2 million settlement for the unauthorized filming of two patients by a television crew. One patient was dying. The other was in, in, in significant distress after being hit by a garbage truck. Filming continued even after a medical professional asked that it be stopped. The Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Health and Human Services said that, Blurring out of the faces is not an acceptable alternative to getting a consent in advance. You see all this pixelation sometimes when people- yeah,
0: Yes, exactly. They say,
1: they say that doesn't count in, in these settings. Um, so, And the Office of Civil Rights is the one who is basically involved in all of these cases. Even news crews have been sued. One case involved the video and audio uh, recording of the rescue of an individual involved in an auto accident where they could, where, where you could hear her screaming and, and crying out and the like. Another group was, uh, that, uh, gets into trouble that, uh, with some frequency is, and I I've seen this personally. When you have a new piece of equipment in the hospital, usually there's a representative from the manufacturer there when it's used for the first time in surgery, like you're putting in a new, a new, new kind of knee, or uh, you're using a a colonoscope for the first time. That there, there's a rep from the company there to make sure everything is going fine, uh, and that makes sense. But these people, there needs to be a consent by the patient to acknowledge why they're there and and and, and an okay. Uh, and this, this rarely, 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 rarely occurs.
0: Well, listen, let's bring, let's bring some bottom lines here. When there's adequate social benefit, the training of medical staff, um, it, it is justifiable as long as the patient is, it's a transparent operation. We've let the fam, the family know the patient know that there will be other people observing uh, and then we can deal with that complaint as it comes up. If there is no obvious social benefit, and believe me, running a reality TV show is n- is hard to see that as a great social benefit, then maybe we should be getting a little tougher uh, on these situations. Even local news, who have a genuine uh, duty to report to the public, does, they don't necessarily have to have graphic film footage within the department itself. In fact, what you've seen now in the Detroit area is they will shoot the reporter from outside the uh, emergency department doors, but no vision, no um, things are shot within the department itself. Here's one
1: of the key points that he said, patients should not be asked for consent to be observed when they are actually in the, in the, in the setting, uh, because, uh, if you say no, there's, there's a pressure that they're going to feel you, you come into the room, there's five people uh, come in with you and you say to the person, is it okay if these, um, uh, student paramedics come in while I do your rectal exam, it's like, um, the, the person's put in a very, very, very bad position. So that the person should not even be asked uh, this case if there is not any kind of substantial value to be uh, ob- obtained. So don't yeah. even ask them. Don't put uh, them in a bad position.
0: Yeah, so Joel, we uh, we both applaud you for bringing this up and uh, making sure that every department should have policies in advance on these things. This isn't a as-you-go kind of process, there ought to be strict policy uh, that's been run by the board, that's been run by council, uh, and, and people should really start rethinking privacy again. It's almost like privacy has disappeared in this country. You know, uh, we've, we've almost come to the point where people say, well, you know, if, if we don't release it, the Russians will, <laughs> or something like that. Uh, I think we have to get out of that and get back into some genuine privacy.
1: Well, you know, I didn't want to go into a lot of the details, but Joel wrote this single-handedly, usually in articles, there's like 10 authors kind of thing. He wrote right. this single-handedly. He has lots and lots and lots of citations of cases, civil, uh, civil cases in particular, a couple of criminal cases where, uh, violations of privacy uh in the medical setting by observers uh were, was was the theme so if you want to get more into this check out the uh this issue of the annals and uh, it's a very very detailed and it not only applies to emergency medicine it goes across the board no matter what department you're you're in uh this he has some ser- serious advice um I, there's also other parts of this article that are not related to the legal a- aspects regarding, you know, beneficence and all of these other concepts related to, um, our relationship with patients.
0: Gregory, uh, what do you think about that? We're going to move on now. Yeah, we're going to move on. And I, what I want to do is thank one of our, um, one of our listeners who will remain anonymous, who basically writes in and says the Ohio, uh, department of health is suing the manufacture several different manufacturers of opiate medications uh, for the fact that they have been misleading to the medical community as to the addictive properties of their medication. Now, I don't know exactly how they were misleading you and I since we started medicine, realized that opiate derivatives have have certain problems associated with them. But here's what we're seeing is another chance for somebody to get at somebody for the opiate crisis in America., uh, Rick and I reviewed uh, Tug Valley Hospital case. No, where, Tug, Tug Valley Pharmacy, yeah, Tug Valley Pharmacy. Uh, and it, was, uh, it involved the, the pharmacy, various doctors, uh, and it extended the liability of those doctors to the crimes committed by the uh, patients to get the money to buy the drugs. Now what we're doing is extending it one more level, saying that the manufacturers themselves are, are at fault. This is like uh, if you've hit your thumb with a hammer. Should we be suing the Stanley Tools for making a hammer uh, when you knew or should have known it can hit your thumb? Although to be fair, Tug Valley Pharmacy
1: was kind of like the uh, the first, and the, the, it involved uh, some local pharmacies. Then they somebody said, well, shouldn't shouldn't the distributor of the opiates know that this pharmacy is giving out tons and tons of drugs compared to others? And so they, st- they w- then went after the distributors, the McKessons, which are the um, folks that get all of these drugs to these pharmacies. And then they went off the next level, which is the manufacturers. And, you know, these suits apparently do have some information in which it appears that the uh, drug companies soft peddled the uh, potential addictive value of these, uh, uh, potential of these drugs. And I think that that there's a bunch of attorney generals now that are suing the makers of these opiates because they think that, uh, they are the, 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 to blame. They're only the deep pockets. The fact of the matter is, is we know that opiates are addictive. I mean, come on, especially we're talking about Oxycontin for crying out loud. Um, so, and, and the other thing about this, Greg is in the LA times about three days ago, there was a story where 400 people, 400 people were arrested, um, throughout the country, uh, for, uh, for inappropriate prescribing of opiates. Right. Uh, and many of them, they were being billed to Medicare billion fraud in terms of, uh, Medicare paying for these opiates. So the fact of the matter is, is that, and how do they find these people? Well, they were off the, off the bell shaped curve. And it's like, why didn't they look for, do this, you know, five years ago, look at the people off
0: the bell. Anyway, I, I know. I think that the, the opiate crisis is a much bigger issue than just picking out the manufacturer, the distributor. Uh, this is a societal question and, uh, isn't going to go away because there's a certain popularity in the political community right now for finding somebody at fault. We've got to find some major, uh, person with money who's really at fault for this opioid problem. And, uh, Unfortunately, I think uh, common sense and science has sort of been lost along the way. Uh, let me just point out an article, uh, Rick, that people might want to take a look at. This is by Jeffrey Gold, who's a professor of medicine at uh, Oregon Health Science University, and he writes. He wrote in the uh, in the Michigan Medicine uh, July August 2017 issue. Uh, He wrote about how medical scribes are trained and are used and the fact that this varies tremendously as to what's out there, what training they've had, what we expect them to do. And he did something very interesting in this article. And I think, by the way, this has been reproduced in a lot of state uh, medical journals. Uh, What he did was he looked at a... uh, respondents in both the doctor community and the risk management community as to what they think is actually being done and what should be done. And it's, and there is variation as to what the doctors think these people can do and what the risk managers think these people can do. Now, in general, maybe it's a 10 to 15 to 20% shift in the groups, but There ought to be some consistency in policy in your hospital so that people know what's happening at any point in time. Um, I think we're living through, and and the problem is when you're living through changes in history, you never notice it, but the workforce changes, whether it be PAs, NPs, techs, um, we're seeing huge changes in what's going to happen in, in the healthcare uh, provision. Uh, and this is just a part of it. I think scribes are here to stay. I think it improves the lives of a lot of patients. I don't think that there's any question that physicians hate spending time on the electronic health record. Uh, but, uh, there are risks that go along with this and we at least ought to be honest enough to talk about it and not just every Tom, Dick, and Harry running his own school for scribes uh, as to what they, they should do with this information.
1: Well, we know there's very specific information that scribes can and cannot put down on the record related to patients who are going to be uh, billed by a Medicare. Uh, you know, they can't put down history of present illness. Uh, they can't put down... Um, uh, The uh, chief complaint. There's also other things that they they can and cannot do, and to a certain extent, this is uh, uh, variable to the uh, to and based on the uh, regional Medicare biller has uh, some say in what scribes can and cannot do. And my friend uh, Kevin Clower, who's with Team Health, basically has because they have so many hospitals around the country, they basically have determined that in in it is best to take the conservative uh, point of view about what scribes do rather than the liberal point of view. So uh, it it seems that scribes ought to be primarily with you when you're in the room and um, not doing things particularly independently, although I know they have the potential for doing some of that stuff.
0: Well, it's more than just the potential, Rick. If we look at how the physicians answered these surveys, uh, they think it's just fine that the that the scribe take the uh, take the uh, review of systems from the uh, patient. Actually, to my knowledge, at
1: least in the uh, Medicare uh, payers that I know, uh, review of systems uh, is uh, can be done. Family and social history uh, can be done as well um, because th- they make the analogy that if you go to a doctor's office, you're usually given a clipboard and say, "Here, fill this thing out."
0: Right. Exactly. Every and so, time,
1: <laughs> and you're filling out the family history, social history, your uh, your review of systems on that clipboard. So they think that that is kind of like a clipboard equivalent. Uh, however, HBI and chief complaints are clearly uh, not in that realm, and clearly the physical exam has to be done uh, in the in association with the physical presence of the of the clinician.
0: Yep. Well, all, all I can say is I think we're in a transition phase as to what's what's happening, what's going on. Stay alert, because I, I believe that our payments uh, may shift based on what you let certain people do in your department. There is no question that uh, there are changes in the laws in our own state here in Michigan uh, as to what uh PAs can do in an unsupervised, directly supervised situation. This is rapidly changing material, and we need to keep up with it.
1: Yeah, actually, if you want to follow the uh, this, you're right. The, particularly in the world of NPs, because they have the uh, potential to be independently um, seeing patients, and uh, there's a big push state by state by state to expand their ability to see patients more or less on their own, basically. They can start a clinic. They can have, in fact, they could probably start their own uh, urgent care centers and no physician uh, being involved. And there's also a push now to do something similarly on the PA side. Yes, technically, PAs can't prescribe. However, there's a a, a push to give more and more and more latitude about what they can do.
0: Uh, here in Michigan, the uh, PAs have recently won um, a, a bill, uh, at the state legislature, which allows them to go into practice. And the term uh, of art is in association with a physician. Now, do you know exactly what that means, Rick? No, but I'm sure nobody it's else does. Defined. Yes. It's going to be defined with the first set of, uh, laws and suits that come up. But basically what this says is, According to the PA Association here in Michigan, what is being said is they can run a practice just like the NPs. They can have signed scripts sitting right there. They can do all kinds of things. And this in association uh, is yet to be defined. Does that mean they have to over read one hundredth of their charts, a thousandth of their charts? Um, This has this is difficulty, uh, written all over it because let's say you're now a 75 year old doctor who wants to have an association with five PAs running clinics. Um, what do you actually have to do? How do you have to interview them? What do you do for quality assurance? Nobody knows the answers to these things and we should keep this in mind. Although we do know that, um,
1: in r- certain rural areas, you have emergency departments, which are entirely run by PAs. Now, I'm sure there's some affiliation with a physician uh, involved, but it was kind of like it's 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 five PAs working out here or nobody. Right, and, exactly. And uh, we acknowledge now that about a third, about a third of emergency department patients are, uh, are seen by uh, PAs and NPs. Something that ten years ago was would you you would have never ever ever conceived of. So things are rapidly changing. That is for sure. And I think in many ways,
0: definitely for the better. Yep, I th- I think that's probably the case. Uh, an update. Uh, this is the Appellate Court, State of Michigan. Obviously, where I live, and so I keep tabs on it. But what they decided in the estate of Donnie Payton versus Nova Internal Medicine, uh, there was an, they decided, the appellate court decided expert testimony that is based on methodology that is contrary to or at least not consistent with recognized methodology is unreliable and inadmissible. And the reason this came up is because we all know about Daubert challenges and the Fry standard. We've talked about those uh, at nauseum in this in this program. But this was a court. The the um, the trial court said right off the top. Defense said, uh, you know, this expert they've got, he's full of crap, and nobody believes him. And we ought to have a show cause hearing that says uh, he's got to show the science. This is before there's ever a trial. This is before there's depositions. This is before there's anything. So they had this show cause uh, meeting. The doctor uh, could not supply literature or they could not supply other doctors to support his testimony. And so the trial court awarded um, a a, uh, a summary disposition and kick the case out. Well, they appealed it to the appellate court, and the appellate court said, that's right. If there isn't some reasonable science here, we're not even going to let you start the case. We're not going to let the you make them run up bills. And uh, after all, half the money in medical malpractice is spent in the process itself. It's not the payments, it's the process, Rick. Hey, speaking
1: about the process, let's talk about the process of wait, making wine because I, we are at Wine of the Month time, Chief. What do you have for us?
0: Uh, I can't believe that we've already come this far, and I, I haven't gotten through any of my cases yet, but... Next month. Next month. Okay. We're going to um, Curlew, K-E-R-L-O-O Cellars, uh, and that's in, Walla, in the Walla Walla Valley of Washington. Now, again, they liked it so much, they named it twice. But their 2016 Grenache Blanc is considered a high-level white wine. Um, Parker gives it a 90. And this is 20 bucks a bottle, Rick. And he rates it along with some of the 60 and $70 a bottle wines. Curlew Cellars. Uh, the uh, Gernache Blanc, uh, get some, drink it. I think you'll like it. Okay, that is the
1: September issue of Risk Management Monthly. Greg and I will likely both be at the uh, ASAP Scientific Assembly in uh, October. If you see us, come over and say hello. I uh, would appreciate it. And uh, anything further, Gregory?
0: No, I think we've uh, done our job. And this, this issue, Rick, has had a lot of different uh, venues Anyone who thinks that risk management in emergency medicine just has to do with lawsuits, they're a long way from understanding what we do. Nobody interacts with the law like emergency medicine.
1: Okay, over and out. Thanks much, Gregory. Talk with you next month.
0: Bye.